This podcast is a presentation of Nags Head Church. Stay tuned and find us online at nagsheadchurch.com and on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nags Head Church. Good morning. Welcome. Good to see you on this uh, St. Patrick's Day, Sunday. I like the green uh, behind us and... Uh, we're going to leave that up because spring starts this week. Are you ready? Oh, yeah, you're real enthusiastic about it. Winter's going to continue for another four months. How about that? Yeah, okay. Glad that you're here. And uh, welcome Matthew 5, which first uh, oh, 12 or so verses were just read to us on the video. That's where we've been. For our guests, we are in a series going through the Beatitudes this month uh, called Attitude Adjustments. And uh, so I'm glad that you're here and you can jump in with us this morning. One more Sunday in this series. Next month, we're going through a series about how we share our faith, how to give our faith away. You're going to be praying for people and inviting people and bringing people. We're going to talk about how to share your faith uh, with those that you care about, those who don't yet know Christ. And so that's a big part of who we are as Christians. In this Sermon on the Mount, which begins with the Beatitudes, Jesus, beginning in verse 3 of Matthew chapter 5, uh, he goes through a list, if you will, of, of eight different attitudes that would be necessary for his disciples. And that's who he's talking to. If you read the first couple verses, he's talking to his disciples. These are going to be necessary things as you live life in a world that for you guys, he's telling them, is going to be tough. When I leave back, you know, it's not going to be a piece of cake. There's going to be some difficult times ahead for you in a world that will neither understand you, won't understand your message, and won't respect you um, as, as messengers of God. Which, With each of these attitudes that he gives, he also promises uh, a reward that they would receive in his future kingdom. It's sort of like Jesus is sitting down with these men and he's saying, listen, I know it's going to be tough here and now, but I promise you, I promise you it's going to be worth it. And so we started last Sunday with the first three blessings, and that's what the word Beatitudes means. It means blessings. And uh, we're going to follow up with the next three. And keep in mind, you can substitute if you want to, when Jesus says blessed in here, you can substitute the, uh, the word happy, because that's what this word means uh, in the Greek. It means happy. So you can do that if, if that helps you understand. So let's pick up with the next attitude, um, which is found in uh, verse, verse number 6. And the, the, the he's, Jesus said there, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness are blessed, are happy. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. So if you're taking notes, the attitude might be this. Determine that your passions will match God's passions for your life. Determine that your life's passions will match God's passions for your life. Bring them together. Uh, hunger and thirst, he said. Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Everybody understands hunger and thirst, don't we? Because we've all been there. We've all been hungry. I have a 13-year-old grandson. And he eats a lot. You know, I think he's hungry a lot. But I have a 7-year-old grandson who, it's, whenever he's with us, it seems like he is always hungry. Always got to feed, be feeding that boy. And we all understand what it means to be hungry. Some of you, before we're done today, because some of you are visiting this morning, you're our guests, and maybe you're from other churches that quit right at 12, right at noon. We don't. And uh, 
And so we're going to go a little bit beyond that, not much. But at noon, because your bodies are accustomed to going home and eating something at noon, at noon your stomach's going to start growling because you're hungry. You haven't had anything to eat since breakfast. And we've all been thirsty, you know, especially in the summertime, out working in the yard or whatever. Jesus said hunger and thirst because he knew everybody gets that. Hunger and thirst. But he didn't say hunger and thirst for food and water. He said hunger and thirst for what? Righteousness. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. And like the other attitudes, he uses physical and emotional pictures to explain the spiritual attitude that a citizen in his kingdom should possess right now. Hunger and thirsting for righteousness. And then he also says, and here's the reward that I promise will come in my coming kingdom. So this hunger and, and thirst he's talking about here, obviously not for food and water, but for, as Jesus said, righteousness. But what is that? What is righteousness? Uh, back back in the, the day when I was uh, young, some of you guys remember back in the, back in the good old days, uh, you might see, you might see a, a really nice, remember muscle cars? You guys remember muscle cars? And, and you might be you know, going down the road and, and a, like a 64 GTO, all fixed up and loud and everything else in the world rides by and you're driving in your, me, your, your Volkswagen bug, you know, and, and, uh, and you go by and, and you saw that car go by and, and you might use the term righteous. You might say, man, that is a one righteous automobile. You know, that's a right. What does it mean to be righteous? Well, a couple meanings. Uh, let me give to you this morning. Righteous, first of all, means being right in God's eyes. Being right in God's eyes. Um, we call that theologically, we have a term for that, we call that positional righteousness. Positional righteousness. And that means this is the place, this is the position that we're all placed in by God who when we stop trusting in ourselves and and our own perceived goodness, and we start putting our faith in Jesus Christ. When I accept Jesus as my Savior, God gives me His righteousness. He sees me literally in Christ. And Christ is righteous. So that's where I am. I am in righteousness positionally. That's the place. God takes away our condemned status when we accept Christ as Savior. And He gives us the status of His Son. And what's the status of His Son? The only perfect man who ever lived. He was righteous. He was right in God's eyes in every aspect. And God says, Christian, you have that righteousness in you. It means being right in God's eyes. It's nothing we work for. It's nothing we create. And frankly, it's nothing we choose. It's a gift that's part of salvation. This positional righteousness being right, being right in God's eyes. So we don't work for it. We don't create it. It's a work of God's grace. But there's a second kind of righteousness. And this second one is the one that Jesus is speaking of here when he talks about hungering and thirsting for righteousness. And it is doing what is right in God's eyes. The first one is being where I am. The second one is doing. And we call that theologically practical righteousness. The first one is position where I am. The second one is practical what I do. And I hunger and I thirst for the right things that God has for me in my life. And this is how I choose to live my life, Jesus is saying. It's how I practice my life. I hunger 
and I thirst for it. It's just like I go to when I'm thirsty and I'm hungry, I walk into the kitchen in my house and open the refrigerator up and get something to drink and get something to eat and satisfy that hunger and that thirst for food. Jesus said his disciples need to be hungering and thirsting like that for being right and living right in his, in his eyes. And the great thing about this one is that for you and I who are Christians, we don't have to do this on our own. It's not something we create. It's not something we chase after with our own strength and power. The Bible tells you and me that the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and dwells us in every believer. And He is here within us to enable us to make the right choices that set us in our lives daily, the things that we do as living right in God's eyes. But as Jesus said, living a life that pleases God requires something. What does it require? It requires hunger and thirst, doesn't it? What, that's another way of saying you got to want it. You have to desire it. You have to have a passion for it. Like hungering and thirsting for food, Jesus said you and I will not live right in God's eyes until, unless we make the choice to be passionate about what is right in God's eyes. Today is St. Patrick's Day. So let me quote something from Patrick that goes along with this point. Can I? St. Patrick wrote these words. If I have any worth, it is to live my life for God. If I have any worth at all, it's to choose to hunger and thirst after righteousness, is what he was saying. I read uh, an article on Tuesday. I was preparing for the message today and, and saw this article pop up. And the title of it was, I thought a fascinating title. The Deadly Deception of Sexual Atheism in the Church. Now, atheism in the church doesn't go together, does it? You know, we think about that. Atheism means, I believe there is no God. And yet, this is, is saying the belief of sexual atheism within the church. What is that talking about? I mean, let me just read some things from the article for you. In a recent study conducted by ChristianMingle.com. Have you heard of them? You know, they're advertised on TV, ChristianMingle.com. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you've ever gone there. And especially if you're married, guys, please don't, don't say that you did. Uh, ChristianMingle.com. They did a study with Christian singles between the ages of 18, typically high school graduates, reaching adulthood, to 59. So almost being... Well, how can I say it nicely, Mark? We're over 59. Mature. All right? And... Uh, and uh, they asked this group of people, Christian singles, this question. Would you have sex before marriage? Would you choose to have sex before marriage? And the response they got was that 63% of the single Christian respondents indicated yes. Something's wrong there. And the writer goes on to say this. He said, it is the ultimate oxymoron that Christians would say, yes, I do. Uh, yes, I would choose that. It's the ultimate oxymoron. And here's what he means by that. A person who at once believes in a wise, sovereign, and loving God who created them and all things, it's an oxymoron that that person can say, yes, I believe in God can also believe simultaneously at the same time that God should not, cannot, or will not inform their thinking or living sexually. It's an oxymoron that we say He's God. He's Lord, 
but I'll live how I want to sexually. He said it's an oxymoron, and it reminds him of these famous red letter red letters in Luke's gospel where Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? So he concludes there is a disconnect between identity, who I am, positionally, there's a disconnect between identity and activity, what I do. Something's broken there. Now, I thought about that, and so what, what could be the problem? And I came up with two solutions. One would be this. We are ignorant of what God says is righteous. We just don't know. And I really believe, especially with the younger people, um, and, and especially with new believers, um, in, in the millennial generation, young people, they, they don't understand, they don't know what the Bible says about these things. They have no clue. Because nobody's ever taught them. They've never read it. They're ignorant of what God says is righteous. Well, the answer for ignorance is to be what? Educated. To be taught. To be informed. And the source of our learning for these things, what is God's will, what God says is righteous, is the Word of God, isn't it? The Scriptures. By the way, if you're our guest today, we're one of those Bible-thumping churches here at Magshead Church. This is the source of what God says is righteous. So what do I have to do to stop being ignorant of the Word of God? Well, I need to study. I need to spend time in the Word on my own. I need to spend time in the Word with others like we're doing here this morning. Spend time in the Word if you're in a connection group here at Nagshead Church. Spending time there faithfully being in a Bible teaching church. That helps with the ignorance part. But what if it's not ignorance? What if it's people that say, yeah, I know what the Bible says, but... And that's the second possible solution for that 63%. And that is we ignore what God says and we choose our own righteousness. Yeah, I know what it says, but here's what I'm going to do anyway. We convince ourselves, and this, this fits with any kind of thing outside God's will in our lives. We convince ourselves that God's standards, well, you know, Rick, God bless you, Pastor Rick, and, and, uh, and so forth, and, and that you're so passionate about the scriptures and about the word of God. But you realize this book was written two to three thousand years ago. You know, it's past tense. It's passe. It's old school. Uh, you need to step into the times a little bit. You need to be a little bit, can I use a political term? You need to be a little bit more progressive, Pastor Rick. We convince ourselves that God's standards or for another time, for another generation, and don't fit, don't work with us. We know what the Bible says, but somehow we choose to dismiss it. Somehow we choose to come up with our own standards for living. We used to do that, by the way, back in, again, go back to when I was a youth. But I still hear people saying the same thing today. We used to say when people, we would talk and, and discuss things in, in school and, and, and mor morals and, and, and those kinds of things, and and, and the, the answer back in, the, in the, the late 60s, early 70s when I was in high school was, well, as long as I'm not hurting anybody, it's okay. You ever hear that? Have you ever said that? As long as it's not hurting anybody else, it's okay for me. So we come up with our own standards, believing, and a lot of people believe that somehow God's okay with us living outside His will because maybe God has changed His mind. Yet the Bible says... That our righteousness, doing what we think or we feel is right, regardless of what God says, 
our coming up with our own standards, the Bible says the best that righteousness can be is filthy rags. Filthy rags. Jesus said that those in this life, where we are right here, right now, 2019, that those of us in this life who hunger and thirst for God's righteousness, whose passion in life is to obey Jesus in every area of our lives, he said, those are the disciples who will be rewarded in my kingdom. Their hunger and thirst now will be realized when we live in the kingdom where Christ is on the throne and ruling the earth. That's going to be a different time then. In that day, uh, there won't be a culture that determines its own way. You and I, Christians, who will be there, we will have been completely transformed and, and righteous living will just simply be our nature. But that's then. That's yet to come. That's why we pray your kingdom come. It hasn't come yet. But this is now. So we must want righteousness, Christian. We must want it like we're hungry and thirsty for it. Our nature, our innate human nature battles this hunger and thirst because my innate human nature hungers and thirsts for things that aren't good for me, that aren't righteous, that are out of the will of God. And Jesus told his disciples here, hey, you know what? Here's the deal. Your attitude needs to be, I'm going to make the choice. I'm going to determine that my life's choices match up with God's choices for my life. So determine today, Christian, that your passion will be for God. Don't let there be that disconnect between your identity, who you are in Christ, and your activity, how you live in the world today. Attitude four. Attitude five is next. And that attitude is a compassionate spirit toward others. Jesus said, the merciful are blessed. Merciful. Have you ever seen someone get what they deserved? You know, you, you read about it, you see it, or someone gets something, they, they did some horrible crime, and, and, and they, they're sent to prison, or whatever the penalty might be, and you say, they got what they deserved. Gail and I watch a lot of 2020 on TV, you know, and, and it's always, the husband seems to always be the bad guy. But they get what they, they deserve uh, a lot of times in, in those cases. I, I've seen that. Get what they deserve. Mercy, like I said, righteousness has a couple ways to look at it. Mercy also can have a couple meanings. One meaning can be mercy, mercy can mean to withhold punishment from someone who deserves it. They deserve the punishment, but you don't give it to them. Uh, that's mercy. Have you ever, have you ever had a, you ever deserved a speeding ticket? You got pulled over by the cop and you deserved the ticket. You knew you were going too fast. He said you were, you said you were, but he let you off. He maybe wrote you a warning or he said, please slow down or something like that. You ever, anybody ever experienced that kind of mercy besides me? I can't tell you how many times that's happened to me. It happened to me just a couple of weeks ago, right out here at Hollowell Street. I ran a red light. Wasn't paying attention. Sitting right beside me at the red light and I took off was a nags head police officer. Jimmy Pierce, who's a partner in our church, he's gone. He was here in the last gathering. And he and I had started to have a conversation, put our windows down and started talking. The phone rang, and I went to answer the phone. I had one of those Bluetooth things and pressed the button. And here's my excuse. 
the button that I press on there is green. And green means go. So I pressed the button and started talking to Scott Williams, and I took off, and Jimmy started to take off too, and he looked up the light, slammed on the brake, but there's all these people around thinking, what's that cop going to do, man? That guy just ran the red light. He's got to go after him. Jimmy said, so I had to put on a show. (laughs) So I'm driving past Jockey Ridge, and I'm talking to Scott, and Scott says, where are you going? I said, well, I'm getting ready to pull into the parking lot at the church, and Jimmy Pierce is behind me with the siren and the blue lights on. He got out, we, he got out of the car, and I get out of the car, and, and we laughed. I said, I said, tell me I didn't run that light. He said, oh, yeah, you did. He said, I just couldn't sit there, you know. And we laughed, and I didn't get a ticket. I got mercy. It pays to be the police department chaplain in the town of Nags Head. No. Get it out of jail card. I've got a bunch of them. Now, That's mercy. Mercy is not getting what I deserve. Mercy can also mean helping others in need who cannot help themselves, reaching out to people that are helpless for some reason. All of us who have been given. Now, here's where all of us can relate to that. You say, I've never, not every time I get pulled over by a cop, I get a ticket. You know, there's no mercy there. But all of us can relate to this, this part of mercy. All of us who have been forgiven for our sins have been shown mercy. If you're a Christian and Jesus is your Savior, the Bible says you're you're forgiven of all your sins. That's mercy. None of us deserves heaven. We all deserve hell, but we don't get it because of Christ, and that's because of God's mercy. And God's merciful, and He's made it possible that when we accept His free gift of grace in Jesus, our sins are forgiven. None of us are able to help ourselves when it comes to changing our nature. The Bible says uh, in the Old Testament, there's a question given in one place. says, can a leopard change its spots? And the answer is no. We can't help ourselves. We can't be good enough. We can't change our own nature to be good enough to have eternal life. And it's because we're helpless. I know what some of you are saying. Well, doesn't the Bible say those God helps those who help themselves? You ever hear that? Yeah, of course. Is that that's in the Bible, right? No, not in the Bible. Somebody made that up. Probably Ben Franklin or somebody. You know, God steps in. What do you mean? God doesn't help those who help themselves. God steps in to help those who cannot help themselves, and that's where salvation comes in. I could not save myself. He saves me. That's mercy. And the Bible says in Ephesians chapter two, verse four, that God is rich. In mercy. Simply put, what that means is he's got plenty of mercy to go around and he loves to share it. That's our God. Rich in mercy. So we should be like that because he's like that. We can do what we can do to relieve suffering. A few weeks ago, we opened our doors here at Nagstead Church to the homeless in our community and we we housed them and we fed them and we gave them a place to take a shower and, and we did different things like that for them. And in doing so, For those people, we are relieving suffering, and we're relieving suffering, why? Because it makes us feel good, right? Well, maybe a little bit, but really we do that because we want to be like our merciful Father, showing mercy. We forgive those who have hurt us, who have offended us. We're being merciful like the Savior, and we forgive them like the Savior who 
after being nailed to the cross, said, Father, forgive them. When we comfort the afflicted with whatever kind of affliction they may have, grief, physical pain, financial pain, when we comfort the afflicted, addiction, with whatever kind of affliction they have, we're being merciful. Now, in the church, some people are gifted with mercy. They just kind of, just kind of, mercy just kind of oozes out of them because that's the spiritual gift that the Lord has given them. And that's a great gift to have. There are some drawbacks to it that you can think of. But it's a great gift to have. Most of us don't have that gift of mercy, that special supernatural ability to show mercy. So for us, do we need to be merciful? Well, Jesus said we should be. Well, how do I become merciful? Well, merciful. Well, maybe it starts with making it a choice. I'm going to show mercy. I'm going to pray, God, that when opportunities come into my life, I'm going to show mercy. And for God to develop mercy in us means this, for those of us who are not gifted with it. It means we, we've got to let God put us into places and into situations where we practice mercy, where we learn mercy. It requires allowing God to soften our hearts and not be so quick to judge or to, ma- to demand justice. Now, those of, the, of you that know me well, you know I do not have the gift of mercy. Mercy doesn't come easy to me. And that's why, just to be honest with you, that's why I don't do counseling. If you call me up and say, Pastor Rick, can you, uh, I need some counseling. Can I come and see you? I'm probably going to say no. You don't want to sit and listen to me because I'm going to say, well, here's the verse in the Bible that tells you what you need to do it. Now go do it and get over it. Bye. And I know, so I don't counsel. But we have people in our church who do. They're merciful people. And I'll send you their way because they'll do a whole lot better for you than you would spend time with me, I promise. But here's what but here's what God I want to be a merciful person. I mean nobody likes not being merciful. And so here's what God did for me. A number of years ago, sixteen years ago, God put me in a position where I had to learn how to be merciful. And he made me in this position, he made me a chaplain in the fire department here in Nags Head. And part of what I do as a chaplain is I respond to things, I respond to times in people's lives when it is the very worst time in their lives. And, and I, I had to start doing that. I remember my very first call as a chaplain was on a Memorial Day Saturday 16 years ago. I didn't have any training to be a chaplain. And, there is, and I've had a lot since then. No training. Didn't know what to do, really. They don't teach you this stuff in seminary. It was a Saturday afternoon, and I was doing my Saturday afternoon stuff on Memorial Day, which for me means don't get in the car and go anywhere. And I got a call. I need to go to South Nagshead because a four-year-old had fallen into a swimming pool and drowned. So I'm on my way down to this, and all the way down, I'm praying. Oh, God, I have no clue how to deal with this, what to do. The four-year-old had been brought on vacation by grandma. Her mother stayed back home. 
died in the swimming pool. It was about 40 minutes before they found him. And I responded to the hospital and walked into the hospital and was told where the grandma and other families were. And, uh, and I was in the room with her when the doctors came in and finally said, we're sorry. And I heard screams and wails. I saw grown men pounding the wall. And all I could do was say, I'm so sorry. I, I had to be merciful, didn't I? I didn't say, well, here's what the Bible says. Now, get over it. I couldn't do that, could I? How wrong would that have been? So I had to be merciful. Oftentimes, I deal with things like that. So as I pray, as I drive to those fires and drownings and heart attacks and car wrecks, I drive to those things and... and, uh, and I, I just pray, my prayers, I'm driving down the road, is God help me be your agent of mercy. Help me, Lord. And you know what God does? He comes through for me. He, he gives me the right word. Or he nudges me and says, just shut up. Just hold their hand. Just cry with them. Don't say anything. Jesus said the reward in his kingdom is that we Christians who have shown mercy now will be receiving mercy there in his kingdom. And it's not, he's not talking about the mercy that we receive at salvation because salvation doesn't have a condition to be merciful. You don't go to heaven because you're merciful. You go to heaven because you, by faith you have trusted in Jesus Christ and not in your works. So what's he talking about here being merciful then? It must be talking about something that at the judgment seat of Christ when we stand before Jesus right before the kingdom begins and we stand before him and he's given out rewards and I hope he's going to be merciful to me then. I hope he's going to say, you know what, Rick? Uh, I'm not going to give you an A plus, but I'll tell you what, maybe a B minus. How about, you know, something like that and and, uh, you don't deserve that. (laughs) But I'm going to give that merciful. We haven't been merciful here and now our potential rewards might be significantly decreased in the kingdom. So the merciful, Jesus said, will receive mercy then. Attitude 6, quickly. A clean conscience and motives. He says, the pure in heart are blessed. Now, in our series last month, we talked about the heart of the matter and uh, about where Jesus said, that where your heart is, your treasure will be also. And and we we talked about the fact that when when it's talking about heart in this way, it's not talking about the muscle in the center of your chest that pumps your blood. It's talking about that part of our souls where our decisions are made, the pure in heart. Right decisions, where, where attitudes are formed, where we consider our next action or response. Our hearts can hurt, can't they, when we suffer loss? Last Sunday we heard, you're blessed when you mourn, and that's a hurtful thing. Our hearts can hurt others when we're hard-hearted, when we're insensitive to their needs. Our hearts can be selfish and self-serving. Our, our hearts can be, our motives can be concealed by our carefully crafted words. There's a story in Jesus' life, if you want to turn to Matthew 15. A story in Jesus' life where he explains how impure the heart can be. In Matthew 15, the Pharisees, that very strict sect, denomination of Judaism, 
that saw themselves as being better than everyone else. They were very self-righteous because they were so strict about keeping the laws and the traditions. And one of those traditions that they kept required them to ceremonially, religiously wash their hands before they ate. This is an act of God, washing my hands. It's, it's like that other thing that everybody thinks is, is in Scripture, but it isn't that cleanliness is next to godliness. It doesn't say that in the Bible. They believe that by doing that, washing your hands, that made you closer to God. So for them, washing their hands, you know, when mom, you went to the table, mom said, have you washed your hands? For her, it was a hygiene thing. Like people often do, they carefully, these Pharisees, watch Jesus' followers and notice they weren't washing their hands before eating, so they, oh, we've got something to criticize them about. And so they pointed it out to Jesus. You know, you guys aren't washing their hands before they eat. They must not love God as much as you think they do. So he pointed out to them very quickly their hypocrisy. They made it a big deal to wash their hands, which was a tradition, wasn't something that God commanded. But at the same time, they ignored one of God's commands. You know, the Ten Commandments, one of them that said, honor your father and your mother. And they found a way, to, a loophole to circumvent that, that they created in their own minds because it was, it was common in those days for people not to honor their parents by taking care of them. In those days, an elderly, your parents got to the place where dad couldn't work anymore. Probably you had to move in with them or they moved in with you. And it was common for them not to honor their parents and to take the money that they might have used to help sustain their parents' lives, to take that money and use that money in another way and say, well, that money that I... Man, I wish I, I had thought about this in advance, but I've taken that money already, Dad, and I've committed it to God. It's going to the temple, God, you know, or Dad. And, you know, I've already said, man, I've told the priest, it's, I, I'm giving it, and I've pledged this money, and I'm sorry, I can't help you out. But what they were doing was this loophole, and they allowed themselves to use that money they had not given to God. And they would use that money and invest it to make more money for themselves while their parents suffered. That's what they were doing. And Jesus, you know, Jesus, I, one of the things I love about him is he's a straight shooter. You know, they didn't pull any punches. So in their hearts, their greed was somehow in their minds, in their hearts, was made acceptable to God while dishonoring mom and dad and getting around God's commands. They didn't care about that. So Jesus says to them, he, he says to them, you know, you're, you're hypocrites, and why do you break God's commandment? Because of your tradition. For God said, honor your father and your mother. And then he talks about them, and he says about them, he says in verse 8, these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They worship in vain, teaching as doctrines the commands of men. Their heart, he said, is far from me. Well, when he said that to the Pharisees, his disciples were standing around. And they're getting really nervous. Because he's talking to the really, really, really holy people in, in the land, the Pharisees. And they're thinking, man, are you going to get them upset? You have offended the wrong people, Jesus. So Jesus continues to shoot straight. Verse 13, he replied when the disciples said, man, don't you know who you're talking to? He said, listen. Every plant that my heavenly Father didn't plant will be uprooted. He's talking about the Pharisees. 
Leave them alone, he says to his disciples. They are blind guides. And if they guide, if they bl- if the blind guide the blind, both fall into a pit. Peter, I love Peter. Peter. Peter doesn't always understand everything Jesus says. So he says, can you, can you make it a little simpler for me, Lord? <laughs> can you do that? Explain it to me. And Jesus said, are you still lacking in understanding, Peter? Don't you realize that whatever goes into the mouth, the food that you eat with your hands, whatever goes into your mouth passes through the stomach and is eliminated. Does everybody understand that today? If you don't, shake your head and somebody will help you understand. All right, it's eliminated. But what comes out of the mouth comes from the heart and this defiles a man. It's not what you eat with your dirty hands that makes you a sinner. But things that come out of your mouth can, out of your heart, are sinful sometimes. For if from the heart come evil thoughts, from the heart come murders, from the heart come adulteries, from the heart come sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, blasphemies. These are the things that defile a man, but eating with unwashed hands, that doesn't defile a man. It's from the heart, Jesus said, that all kinds of sins originate in that. So, the point that Jesus was making is that the heart can be impure, can it? Can it not? The Old Testament says it's deceitful. Who can know it? It's desperately wicked, the Bible says. Be careful when people say, well, just go with your heart. Go with your gut. Sometimes my gut is wrong. My heart is wrong. Jesus puts a premium on a pure pure heart. And the keys to maintaining a pure heart, pure motives, are to stay as close to Jesus as you can. So let me suggest four things for you. Just real practical things to close out with. Maintaining a pure heart. Number one, these these are not rocket science. You probably have heard me say these things before, but they bear repeating in my life and yours, I'm sure. Number one, spend time with him in his word. Get into the Bible. When his word is permeating my mind, it acts like, it's like soap. It cleans it up. Secondly, spend time with him in prayer. Spend time with the Lord in prayer, talking, conversation with God. Because when he and I are having conversation regularly, as Paul would say, without ceasing, I'll be more conscious of maintaining a pure heart. And three, spend time confessing my sins to him. We commit sins. I do, you do. Confess them to the Lord regularly. Spend time doing that. Confession to the Lord is the way to cleanse my heart when I've sinned. Confession means... Simply, I, God, what I did was sin, and I'm in agreement with you. It means to say the same thing about sin that God says. And then number four, spend time with those who are following Christ. One reason Jesus created the church is so we would not have to go through this life alone. No Lone Ranger Christians. He created the church. We need this community of Christ followers to be our examples to Hold us accountable. Jesus says the reward is that a pure heart will result in seeing God in in the kingdom. What does that mean, seeing God? Aren't we all going to get to see God in His kingdom? And the answer is, yeah. But He says only the pure in heart. Yeah, well, it's a Hebrew phrase. 
I, we don't necessarily understand things in the Hebrew. You know, even in our country, in different places in the country, there are expressions that people have that the rest of us, we have no idea what they're talking about. Go down to Ocracoke. They've got some of their own expressions down there. Do you know any Yankees? You know, when they say things up there, and I go, what was that? Hebrew phrase, and the Hebrew phrase to see God means to enjoy or to possess. They will see God. For example, when Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, you know that story? Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. He wasn't talking so much about seeing it with his eyes. He's talking about enjoying it, possessing it. Only the born again can enjoy and possess the kingdom. But again, he's speaking to Jewish people and they understand these Hebrew phrases, this culture does. And they knew that those who see the face of the king see the kingdom. Those who see the face of the king see God. You don't see the king unless you're his friends. You don't see the king unless you're his favorites. You'll dwell with him in his kingdom, he was saying. And, and all Christians, I believe all Christians, everybody's born again, saved, knows Jesus as Savior. You're going to see the kingdom of God. You're going to be there. Well, be in some way part of his kingdom, but who wants to be a spectator watching from the outside? And I think that's Jesus' point in these Beatitudes. Please get this. If I'm a spectator now, in life right now, 2019, if I'm a spectator now, if I'm not practicing these attitudes, if I'm not chasing after righteousness, consciously going passionate for it, if I'm not merciful, if I'm not pure in heart, if I'm a spectator now, meaning, yeah, I'm saved, but I'm not being changed. I'm professing faith in Christ, but I'm still not following. If I'm a spectator now, even as a Christian, in the kingdom, I'll be a spectator then. I'll be there, but I'll be sitting on the sidelines. There won't be much given to me to do. I don't know about you, but in the kingdom, I don't want to be a spectator. I want to be a participant. I really do. I hope you do as well. Would you bow your heads with me, please? Let me ask you a question. Which of these three attitudes, and maybe all three, but which of these three attitudes perhaps need some adjusting in your life? Are you hungering and thirsting for what is right in God's eyes? Are you merciful to those who may not deserve it, but need it? Or to those who are truly in time of needs in their lives, are you, do you walk away, do you close your eyes? Are you merciful? And how about your motives and conscience? Are they pure? Or are you feeling guilt about things that you may be covering up? Let's pray. After I pray, we're going to sing a song. At the conclusion of the song, our pastors will be standing here at the front. And they would love to pray with you and talk with you. And if there's some, any of these things that you would say, I, I need prayer for, I need God to change my life, it would be their, their honor and their privilege to talk with you and pray with you. Father, change our lives. It starts with our hearts. It starts with our attitudes. 
Thank you for Jesus and for His teaching. To His disciples then and to His disciples today. Help us to be hungering and thirsting for Your righteousness. That means turning ourselves away from the righteousness that this world may profess. The standards and and lifting up Your own. What You say is right. Help us to be merciful and help us to have right motives to be pure in heart. May your Spirit give us the strength to do all these things. He's here and that's his, his purpose. He wants to. May we accept His guiding in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Nags Head Church. Love God. Love others, reach the world.